the idea of limits, we just feel like that constraint and we just feel like the inch of them. And we kind of think that what it means to be happy is to be free. And what it means to be free is to have unlimited personal autonomy to define ourselves, which is actually a lie uh, from Satan. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Do you ever feel stuck? You might even feel mad at God because of the space and place you find yourself in right now. You might be even saying, hey, this wasn't the plan, God. I'm supposed to be doing blank. Why is my world so tiny? Why are my options so limited? Look at all the people around me who are getting what they want and have it all together. Why is my situation so messed up? I know you feel that way. I think many of us do. If you've ever felt that way, then today's episode is for you. I'm speaking with Ashley Hales about her new book, A Spacious Life. Sometimes we talk with some pretty heady academics about foundational ideas that can take a lot of work to figure out. And you also need a lot of patience to see how these ideas meet our everyday lives. And sometimes we talk with creative types like Malcolm Geit and Karen Swallow Pryor about the importance of our imagination. And sometimes we can talk with the -the on-the-ground types, the ones living out a missionary encounter with their Western culture, even if they don't use those terms. And Ashley is the trifecta. She has a PhD in English literature from the University of Edinburgh. And Ashley is a writer, speaker, podcaster, mom to four, oh, and she's married to a pastor. There's a lot going on in her world, to say the least. So she's really the perfect person to talk to about limits. And not just in the... I can't do anything more sense, not like that, but in the, we are supposed to have limits and those very limits are the things that help us to trust God more and to grow into who he wants us to be sense. (laughs) This conversation actually reminded me of another conversation that we had last fall with Kelly Capick about his book, You're Only Human. And for those that want to go back, it's episodes 129 and 131. They are at once deep, and they touch on our need for wonder, and they're also very immensely practical. I think you're going to really enjoy and benefit from this conversation, because we do need to know that we have limitations. Our world today, especially in the West, makes us think we don't have any limitations at all, and we shouldn't. We should shatter through them. But that's not the case. Actually, our limitations can be a very good thing when you look at them from God's perspective. And if you want to check out more of our episodes or learn more about our ministry, please feel free to check out our website, apolloswatered.org. There you'll find what we've been doing, resources to help you in your missionary encounter, find out where we're going to be, and how you can have us come to your church or group to speak with you with one of our watering weekends. Now, let's get to my conversation with Ashley Hales. Happy listening. Ashley Hales, welcome to Apollo's Water. (laughs) So glad to be here. Okay, are you ready for the Fast Five? I will do my best. Okay, here we go. Number one, first question for the Fast Five. The most, your most favorite place that you ever have lived so far is where and why? 
Um, I would just say Edinburgh, Scotland for graduate school with my husband and I before we had children. So it was fantastic cosmopolitan city with an ancient castle in the middle of it. And we were free and fancy free. And so we could go travel. It was really fun. I had a friend once that was there and I, I said, Hey, what's it like living in, he was in Aberdeen. I said, what's it okay, like? He yeah. goes, well, if you, if you don't mind not seeing the sun and having that, food, good true. food, it's great. <laughs> we had a little bit bigger city, so maybe that was helpful, but yeah, dark maybe. at three 30 is a little rough. Uh, okay. Number two, here we go. Yep. My most go-to item at Costco is what and why? Oh, probably either the protein powders um, and the chips for my kids. So it's kind of, we got some cross country runners. So getting them fueled is pretty important. How old are your kids? They are 16, 14. Uh, now you've put me on the spot here. Uh, 11 and almost 10. It's funny. You're like, I can't remember. I know. Cause we just had birthdays too. So <laughs> I have a friend of mine. He's got six. And he went to Walgreens to get medication for one of them. And they said, what's, what's your kid's birthday? And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I need a cheat sheet. Yeah, it's like, I can't yeah. remember that. The kids are in the yeah. back are like, dad, thanks. This is really helping ourselves. <laughs> it, dad. I feel so loved. <laughs> uh, number three, the best advice I could give someone in ministry is what? Make sure you have good friends and counselors and spiritual directors around to support you who are not in your ministry context. Hmm, that's a good advice. That's a really good advice. Yeah, I, I gathered there were some wounds after reading some of the ministry. I've <laughs> been in ministry. I'm like, oh, I can recognize that. You recognize yeah. when someone's been hurt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure we've dished them out, you know, in equal measure. So you mentioned well. that part. I like the hurt part. I didn't like the fact that I hurt other people. <laughs> I know. We try not to, but it's inevitable. Oh, you're right. You're right. Okay, here we go. Next question. Number four, because you are a writer. Mm-hmm. And you're, you've got a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. So you have to be a reader of some sort. Yes. yes. The section of a bookstore that you don't want to leave is what Ooh. and why? Mm, I like that one. That one's fun. Um, I, mean, I would say too, probably just like your classic fiction. Because I want to see like, ooh, how have they redone new covers? And what have I not read? And I really need to pick up. Um, and then I would also say... Probably like the decorating section, like home decorating. Um, I like things to be beautiful. And so I like that big glossy page that you can look Mm. at and get inspired by. Mm. Well, that actually leads us to our our fifth question. Mm -hmm. If you were a trend, like a fashion trend in your home for decorating, what would it be and why? That's really good. Um, I mean, we tend to have a lot of mid-century modern or like elements that are classic and mid-century modern in our actual house. Um, but I think if I was going to put my personality, I, it would definitely not be Chip and Joe in the shiplap sort of thing. That feels like too overdone. So it would have to be something a lot more um, odd, like something abstract, maybe that felt a little bit more splashy than just mid-century modern or shiplap. <laughs> in the modern farmhouse sort of thing. <laughs> I get that. I understand that. And I agree about it. It's hard because when, when Chip and Joanna came out, I really liked it. I did too. But, but yeah. as time's gone on, it's like, okay, now everybody's doing it. Right. And some houses should not be made over in that same style. Like you got to <laughs> fit with what you got. <laughs> I, I am in total agreement there. All right. 
So there we go. Let's get into uh, a little bit, not about the book yet. I want to hear a 30,000 foot view just of your bio and the reason behind your book is Spacious Life. Yeah, well, um, 30,000 feet. uh, I kind of started my career thinking I was going to be an academic um, and then had lots of children. And we've been in ministry for about uh, 20 years or so. And with moves and all of that, I just kind of turned to writing as a way to kind of scratch some of that creative itch. And so a spacious life came out of my experience, um, just thinking about like, what, how would I write back to myself as a young Mm -hmm. mom, um, that felt disoriented by my limits? You know, I'd kind of, we went to Edinburgh, I have a PhD, I should be doing more than, you know, making, Chef Boyardee for my children and like telling them, no, really, they need to go take a nap. Um, it felt like the limits of my season were particularly restrictive. Um, and so I got angry, got angry at God and my husband because he could have real conversations with like adults. And, um, and you know, so I wanted to, to kind of engage in the same way that my first book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, kind of asked the question, if you're in a place that's affluent. And if you're in a place that maybe isn't even your first pick, like it's still possible to find a life of faithfulness there. It's still possible to push back, you know, against some of those kind of cultural idols and to find what God would have you do in a particular place. In the same way, I think we all really come to terms with our limits and we come to our limits in college. We come to our limits, you know, in middle age, we come to our limits in particular life places and circumstances. And I wanted to, you know, ask the question, what if those were actually a pathway to greater understanding of God and love of God and love of our neighbor? The fact that you had mentioned the goodness of limits in the title, these limitations that are there, very few of us think of limits as good. In our culture, we're told to have no limits, to push through the limits. And the fact that you even phrased it and turned it that way was Mm -hmm. a bit of an eye opener. And it made me stop and go, wait a minute, these aren't bad things. These are actually Mm -hmm. good things Mm -hmm. that we see right now. How are our limitations from God actually a gift to us? Yeah, you know, I think it's so important to kind of start at the very beginning. So in, in God's good creation, before sin enters the world, we actually have limits, right? Creation requires limits, that the light is separated from the darkness, that the land is separated from the sea, that planets have particular orbits, that the land has seasons where it is to lie fallow and where it is to flourish. And, you know, Adam and Eve, of course, have limits. They have limits of their body. They're limited to a place. They're limited to the relationship that God has given them to one another. Um, They're limited in their work. And all of those things are good. Um, Because I think just kind of, we have this knee-jerk reaction, especially in American culture anyway, that the idea of limits, we just feel like that constraint and we just feel like the inch of them. And we kind of think that what it means to be happy is to be free. And what it means to be free is to have unlimited personal autonomy to define ourselves, which is actually a lie uh, from Satan, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. back in Genesis chapter three, but it's important to remember limits are good. They're actually built into creation. So they are the way in which God designed us as creatures to flourish is through limits. Okay. You, you really do 
talk about, I mean, not the, just the limits are, are, are good that God has given us the limits, but then you put it into the category of what happens when we go outside of those tra- limits. Yeah. I want you to talk for a moment in how you define transgression or how the transgression yeah, yeah. is defined. I thought that was kind yes. of an eye opener. I went, what am I sinning? <laughs> right. I know. I love that. As like an English PhD nerd, I'm like, Ooh, I love words and where they come from. So yeah, the idea of transgression, right? We, we think of that, oh, it's a really fussy Christian word. We just talk about sin or debts now, right? In the Lord's Prayer, we don't use the word transgression anymore. Um, but the idea of transgression, if you think of the, if you split it up, right? It comes trans, it means to move across and gradiere is the Latin root, which means to go. So the idea of transgression is really to go beyond, right? To go across. Mm. And, and so what, when we can think about sin that way is that sin is actually a going beyond of God's good limits, right? To try and grab something for, for ourselves that we believe he, you know, functionally anyway, we believe he's not going to really come through for us. We don't really believe he's good. And so sin in whatever action or behavior kind of crops up is transgression. It's going beyond the good limits that God gives us in creation. And in our culture today, we don't like to think about that again, like you said, um, because we are, we're too busy and you write not only about busy because everyone is busy, yeah, but the habits of hurry Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) was the terminology and description you use. Mm -hmm. What, how are we, not that I think you need to define this because anyone listening already knows, but just, just to help us out. Yeah. How are we in habits of hurry? Yeah. You know, I think we often don't think about the small ways that we're formed, right? We, um, we can easily compartmentalize, well, my faith is over here and, you know, my ministry life is over here. And, you know, when I'm in this particular place, I kind of turn on those things. Um, and we don't often think about the ways our small little habits are actually forming us and forming, um, not only what we think, and what we do, but also who we really are. And so even things like scrolling through our phones kind of to numb out right at the end of the day, or you're waiting in line at the supermarket and um, you again, right, pull out the phone. um, We begin to kind of isolate ourselves in those, even in those moments when we have some margin handed to us by living in society we tend to numb or isolate ourselves um, through media. And it's not to say those things are bad or like listening to a podcast on your walk is bad. So hopefully all you walkers are enjoying the conversation. Um, (laughs) Or if you're doing, listening to the podcast while folding your laundry, I do that too. Um, But if we are never uncomfortable, if we're never experiencing silence, if we're never, you know, trying to even just have a conversation with people that we don't know in those in those spaces and those third spaces, we're really missing out on what it means to be a creature. So I would say the phone is the easiest way that we tend to hurry. We tend to do that with our calendars too, where we fill them all up, where we feel like um, often, you know, for mothers or fathers, if they have children to feel like I have to do all of these things because all of their, their kids' friends are doing all of these things, whether all these extracurriculars. Um, And we don't actually take the agency that God has given to us. And instead we kind of just get on the conveyor belt of what our culture might say. These are the things that look like love. Um, There might not be. There's so much in that. 
in our culture that's just so busy, and you said the conveyor belt, that's a really good picture, mm-hmm. by the way. You mentioned also this idea of the sins of omission, the sins of commission, and how digital addiction is a form of a sin of omission. Mm-hmm. I had not thought of it in that way. So mm-hmm. thanks for compounding my guilt. <laughs> You've done, you did a great job of just making me feel like a bad parent. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, because I think, I mean, I, I, so we started a nonprofit, right? We talked yep. about this on the show. Yep. And so it's dependent upon you in some mm-hmm. respect. I mean, of course it's right. by God is the one who has to do it, but you have to work. You have right. to do the work yep. and, it, yep. and it's that startup season. But there is times where you're so emotionally drained yep. and you, you, you don't have the energy to fight, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's not an excuse. It's just mm-hmm. where things are. Mm-hmm. But when I saw it as a digital addiction, Cause it's easy to scroll. It's easy to go and watch, you know, Downton Abbey or whatever the right. crown. And, but how, what made you put it as a sin of omission? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can only think of sin often in terms of commission, like what we do, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, even if I say something unkind to a family member or a friend and they're hurt by it, I tend to be like, Oh, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. Like, um, I didn't, you know, you shouldn't have taken offense. And so we don't actually repent for the fact that we hurt people, um, even if we didn't mean to. And I I think, you know, we're always kind of judging so that we don't actually have to reckon with our, our sinfulness. So we don't actually have to repent. So we generally think we're okay. And so we generally feel like functionally, we don't actually need God. Um, and so I think for our digital habits, and then I'm not saying it's, you know, it's fine to scroll through social media. I think what, what becomes, when that becomes a habit, right? So every time we lay down in bed and out comes the phone um, and it's kind of an indeterminate amount of time, like we're not actually consciously trying to choose the phone. We just like let the phone choose us, for instance. Those are sorts of things where we become malformed, right? Where we are taking in so much information we're not even able to really engage with anything we see particularly on our phones. It's not like, oh, there's this huge earthquake somewhere halfway across the world. I'm going to pray for those people. It's just kind of like, we just like take in emotions. We take in information um, and we don't do anything with them. And so, you know, that gets our nervous system all whacked out and it makes us more tired and we're not mm-hmm. actually bringing some of those things to God. So ideally, the ways in which we engage with people in our world should enable us to move through, you know, our work days and weeks with a sense of, you know, I can bring this to God, that this is kind of a constant conversation. Um, And, you know, that I'm able to think creatively. And when we work so hard and we don't actually incorporate moments of rest, and then we opt out of real rest, real restorative rest by, rolling or numbing in various ways. And we don't actually allow for a transformation or growth. Because it is in the rest where that growth does occur to, right. to shut that off. And I, I know there's been several that have addressed this. I remember reading Restless Devices by Felicia Wu Song. She's been a guest on the show or Jay Kim mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. analog Christian mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and how we're all facing this, this idea of what technology is doing to us. What really struck me, though, is the image that you you gave of what it's actually doing. And I want to give this quote because I thought it was so enlightening is probably the right word. And I mean, the eyes of my mind saw it in a different way. Actually, I 
I didn't see it how you intended it. I actually saw it more from a parenting perspective, but let me get yeah. you like, what you wrote. Another thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're children wandering the aisles of the internet because we've lost the presence of a loving of our loving parent. Mm-hmm. And I took that as my children are wandering the aisles like, at first because right. I went because yeah. I'm on my phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're like, where's like, dad? <laughs> oh no. And then I read it again. I went, well, that's less convicting. I mean, but it's still <laughs> convicting. That was a really beautiful image, but also very poignant. And mm-hmm. I thought it, it it just opened you up your imagination to see it in a different way. But do you really feel that's what it is for us? It's 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 the equivalent of mm-hmm. G.K. Chesterton's every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Mm-hmm. Is that us mm-hmm. flipping on the phone mm-hmm. and say so. like the Internet looking for God? I think so. You know, it's always like if I just have this one more piece of information or if I just have this great new health hack. Um, if I have even just this other book that I'm ordering to like, give me more, more, more like good things. Um, it's important to take care of our bodies. It's important to, you know, find out about better parenting techniques. It's important to go like, Oh, there's this cool new ministry conference. Um, but I think we can often turn to our devices to fill something deeper than just like informational transfer. Have you ever wondered, my wife and I've had this conversation, we have all of these different books about everything. We can learn yeah. about everything, but yeah, our grandparents didn't have any of this stuff. And sometimes I'm like, they didn't do so bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they sat, yeah. my great grandparents were sitting around the table going, man, my parents really screwed us up. <laughs> right. You know, I do. Yeah, I do. We have like so much more information and, you know, when it comes to, parenting or trauma or generational issues, right? Some of it's so helpful, but it can just also turn us so completely in on ourselves. Um, And that's, you know, when you could, you couldn't afford to do that if you had to like go work in the fields for 10 hours a day. Well, even in the, I read through the scriptures and I'm like, I don't think these guys were as self-obsessed as we are. But I do know in the great commandment, right? We have mm-hmm. to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. But you love your neighbor, but I'm also love myself in a biblical way to understand yep. Yep. who I am, my own limitations. Because yep. I do think that technology has pushed us along in such a way that mm-hmm. we have pseudo tapped into like pseudo omniscience or pseudo omnipotence. Yeah. Um, and that's why I love how you even preface the book at the beginning from Psalm 16. The lines have fallen mm-hmm. to me, you know, mm-hmm. to me in, in these is pleasant places. I'm butchering it, but so. When when you talk about this, you you don't talk about balance because I think balance is possible personally, but you mentioned like rhythm Mm -hmm. and how does, what part does these, these rhythms help us to find that we can't get with that elusive balance? If that makes any sense. That's the weirdest question ever, Ashley. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I'll I'll try (laughs) No, but I think I like your aversion to the word balance, because again, that's kind of making our lives like some sort of math equation or um, those like rock stacks at the beach um, where it's like, if I just get this little teeny rock in the right spot, all will be well. Um, And so that ultimately leaves it all up to us and our kind of productivity churning. Um, But I think the idea of rhythm, um, it's a beat, right? That you inhabit, that you participate in something that lives outside of you and your, and your work. And so I think that's important. 
But, you know, if we think about rhythms too, I feel like it takes the pressure off of needing to get quote unquote it right, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. so we realized that, you know, in various seasons, you know, when my children were little, I didn't do a lot of writing or speaking. Now that they're older, that's possible. And it'll be different, right? When they all leave home, um, that we have different kind of moments and seasons of our lives and different like emotional or psychological energy for people or for for ministries. And I think it's important to name those um, and to realize like that is part of a rhythm. And then we have like our internal daily and weekly rhythms as well. So, you know, for me, and I'll, I'll say it like this. I realized like a few years ago, like if I can get like a walk outside in nature or get to the gym, if I can drink enough water, if I can make sure I eat some vegetables, read my Bible, like I'll be a happier human, right? Like, and if I can read something that like makes me excited, that's beautiful. Like that's feels like directly an Ashley sort of. Well, you know, there are several days where I am able to check all those things off the list and I'm still like shouting at my children and, or, you know, I'm short with my husband or I don't extend myself. And so it's, it can't be that like, well, I've checked off all of these things and therefore I'll be a better human. But it is to say, you know, these are the rhythms that are life-giving that are important to prioritize, but also like they're not the thing that saves me. She's the thing that saves us. Of course, Christ is the one who saves us. And when you mentioned this idea of balance and the rocks, I actually had a picture of Jenga in my head. (laughs) And and Jenga, though, is in some ways respect. Some people can put stack it a lot better. Yeah. But you still can't go that far. Eventually, it's going to fall over. Every one of us has limitations. Yeah. I like how one guy told me, he said, some people are big Legos and other people are small Legos. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Especially when you have kids, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about Christ saving us, mm-hmm. what I've noticed is that some people have no problem with Christ saving us, but there's still this idea within that, that I still have to present myself in a way. Mm-hmm. Christ isn't become the all in all. He's my savior, but functionally, right. he's removed from my everyday. Yeah. How do we help people see and put those back together? The change, the actual trajectory, not just management within the Western culture, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. help them change and create a counter direction. You mentioned when living in the suburbs and after your first book, mm-hmm. we can bloom here, but we can also confront some of the cultural idolatries yeah. that are here. Yeah. How can we help do that by living the spacious yeah. life and living within these limits? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is the question. Like, how do we get real spiritual growth and transformation? Um, you know, I'm just reminded of like, we want, oh, use this curriculum. And like, we've used Pete Scazzaro's emotionally healthy, um, well, his whole emotionally healthy, what is it? Discipleship, um, work. And that has been helpful because it helps you certain things in that, like where you're doing a praying, a daily office where you are actually being silent before God, before you do your Bible reading and prayer. and that idea of being present with God without needing to perform for God is hugely transformative for for people if they haven't tended to do that or relate to God in that way. Um, I know for preachers the kind of, it, you know, you're always worried about the, the sermon on every Sunday, right? And so you mm-hmm. can even turn to the word of God as, you know, this is the data I need to produce a product um, rather than 
first seeing ourselves as God's beloved child, um, that he gets a kick out of. So I think there are some practices um, and there are some curriculums that are helpful, but I am reminded of, you know, Jesus talking about unless the kernel of wheat falls and it's broken apart and goes into the ground, that it's not going to actually grow. And so I think honestly, a lot of our spiritual growth and transformation happens through little and big suffering, hardship. Like we have to be broken apart in some way. You know, I remember Keller saying that part of what we do in order to be heard in our culture is to be able to articulate the position of unbelievers back to themselves in a way yeah. that they would agree. Yeah. But I also remember Newbegin. Keller quoted him in his book, Center Church, but he's quoting yeah. Newbegin of these, these ingredients for missionary encounter. Mm-hmm. And he says, we must be able to, to serve the, the people around mm-hmm. us, but serve, sacrifice, and I think suffer. Yeah. In such a way that people see that it's different and l- listen, that's one of those that are kind of mm-hmm. within that. But we don't suffer well no. in our culture and we, no one likes to suffer. And you actually bring out the one part of suffering, the, the, the word waiting. <laughs> I mean, let's just talk about patience too at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, let's mm-hmm. just keep throwing stuff in there. People don't want to hear suffering, <laughs> waiting, patience. Yeah, yeah. Have you read, I don't know if you're familiar with it, perhaps you are, Alan Kreider's book on the ferment of the early church. I have it. I'm just starting reading it, which oh. it's, been, it's been suggested to me for years. And I'm like, okay, I'm finally, finally getting around to it. So <laughs> but yes. that idea of that slow, steady yes. growth, but we don't yeah. want that. We, that doesn't bring donors. No, that doesn't right. bring the show. That doesn't bring eyeballs that no one wants to see and put a camera on something grow. They want to see it fast forward. Right. But they don't want to see it. Yet yeah. God invites us to wait. And he's not going to change his tactics for our multimedia generation. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's really slow, right? Like, you know, Paul talks about, right, our perfection that we will see, right, in heaven, right? It's not even like, oh, in the next 70 years, it's going to all be sorted, you know? So um, waiting is really, really hard. I think, you know, even just, like we moved, we've moved a lot in the last three years over the COVID pandemic and jobs and all of that. Um, we've been in our house here on the central coast of California for a year and we're renting and we love it. And it's like, okay, God, when are you going to help, you know, figure out our investments or give us a wealthy donor so we can actually afford to purchase a home? Um, and we just don't know. We don't know if that's even what he's going to do. Right. And it's really hard to wait. And I think you know, for a while I was just like, it's easy when we're in that waiting space to look around and be like, well, all these other people have X, Y, Z, or it sure seems like someone else has a lot of success in their line of work. And why don't I, um, but that waiting really is an invitation to cast our cares and to cast ourselves on the loving God and, and to realize that often when we're waiting and the hard part about the waiting periods in our lives from something as small as a house to something much more significant in our lives is that in those waiting periods, really what we want is control, right? We want, we want to control the situation. We want to know, yes, our kid's going to turn out okay. And when they're walking through a valley and they're walking away from God, we, we want the end story. And so each moment of waiting really is an invitation to, to cast ourselves on the control of God and to give it up ourselves. I had a friend who 
recently they moved overseas with their family uh, to be missionaries, which is really exciting. And she's just said in these, they had several months where they had left their job. They're waiting for their fundraising to finish coming in. They're waiting to get all these, the paperwork from the government so they can stay and move. And, and she says, you know, it feels, and I think this was part of their missions organization, but it feels like you're an uprooted tree with your roots kind of dangling out in the air and everything feels really, really tender. And you're waiting to kind of be planted. Um, in the next space, the next place. And I, that was a, it was a, a potent image to take with me. I think it feels a lot like that. And to, to give ourselves grace too, for that fragile feeling um, as we're midair. <laughs> I, I, I like that picture. I feel like with God, with us, he took the tree, turned it upside down and shook it <laughs> and then started yeah. slapping the dirt off of it. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it's like, I'm in shock. That's what <laughs> right, it feels like. right. Sometimes it's a lot more violent. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you also talk about in in this idea of waiting you mention what you actually mentioned a negative example of Mm -hmm. some who who didn't wait and some disastrous consequences Mm -hmm. for their unwillingness to wait you want to elaborate on who that is if you remember it's been a while i know i'll need to look yeah. I'll give you a hint. It, it involves <laughs> it involves the Old Testament and a big uh-huh. cow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there's lots of people in the Old Testament who don't wait. I know wait that's well. true. That's that's my bad. That's my bad, Ashley. I can like just pick one. I mean, Israelites yeah, right. 101, 201. Right. Yes, yes. First year, yes. second year, third right, year, right, forty. Right. <laughs> we can just list them off, which is so great, though, right? We're in good company, um, but. Right. You know, the Israelites are, are waiting, right. For God. And then Mm -hmm. and Moses goes up to hear the actual God and there's thunder and lightning and all these crazy things right on Mount Sinai. And they're like, I know let's choose to build a cow. (laughs) Like we will worship, we will worship this calf. Right. And so we easily turn to other things. You know, the point of that, you know, in our modern day analog is when we are, when we don't actually believe and trust God, when we're not willing to wait, we're going to turn to something. We're even going to create something to worship instead. So whether that's ourselves, our productivity, our schedules, children, um, our work, our ministry, and that those things become functional gods when we don't wait well. Do you think that COVID made people have to come face to face with their lack of control? I think so. I mean, that's why you got right in the very beginning. We were supposed to like, like go to the grocery store in like a hazmat suit and like spray down our groceries. Cause like, we didn't even know <laughs> how anything, like how it transmitted. Um, and, you know, I just like, there was a sense that like, if I can just do this thing that maybe I'll be safe and okay. Right. Like I'm going to follow, and I'm not saying we shouldn't follow guidelines at all. Quite the contrary. But there's this idea that when we are thrust into this moment of total lack of control, we try to find something to steady ourselves. Um, so for sure, yeah, there was a whole lot of fear. And I think that that fear didn't actually unite us, right, as a nation that fragmented us further. With a whole lot of other, of course, things come up. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing that I I thought about is you mentioned that Waiting makes us wrestle with the deep questions of our identity. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm wondering if COVID really brought it to the forefront that 
we we weren't who we thought we were. Mm-hmm. And we start finding out who we are and it's not pretty. Yeah. And so there's this idea of control of escapism mm-hmm. of Netflix because mm-hmm. it's in the waiting that we do come face to face with who we really are. Mm-hmm. What we really believe about ourselves, what do we really believe about God? And we can Christianize anything. Right. That's the that's the worst part of it because mm-hmm. people then become living out of a cliche, right? And the cliches don't yeah. help at all. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, God doesn't stop. He continues to press His Spirit in the waiting as mm-hmm. we become more aware of those motivations, those idolatries in our own hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. How do we help? Not in that process, but how do we embrace in it? You actually referred to Paul. He learned mm-hmm. the secret of contentment. Mm-hmm. Describe that for a moment. Yeah, no, I think, right, yeah, Paul talks about, right, I've learned the secret to being content. I'm like, what is that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> me, you should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> like, give me a five cents to contentment right. 101. Um, but, you know, like he has been in, you know, he's had everything. He's had nothing. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. Um, you know, and it's really, it, it's that he has Christ, right? He, kept, he says, I count it all for naught, right? That I might have Christ and gain Christ. And so I think that's, we don't actually believe that, you know, as modern Westerners, no. like we have refrigeration, we have cars, we have the internet, we have you know, processed foods. There's so many things that we can use. I thought you said these are good things. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad things. Right. (laughs) But we can use so many things, right, to bring us pleasure, to bring us joy and even good things, right? Um, And we, it's almost like the rope never runs out. Um, It's, and so it's only as we experience kind of that rope ending um, that we can choose to cast ourselves on the mercy of God and to realize that's really all we have. And it's really the only thing that satisfies us. Which is my, this is what we contend as we talk about our missionary encounter with Western culture, Mm it's that in some ways the Western culture is, is more dangerous Mm -hmm. than places where outright persecution, Mm -hmm. because it's the killing me softly idea. People don't (laughs) realize how they've been lulled into the spiritual slumber and they don't see the reality of their own condition Mm -hmm. and we have to wake up to this idea of where we are really i i I think of the book of revelation with the seven churches you know you you think you're doing this but you're really not you're really you're really pretty bad yeah um and we're not talking just about sin being sinful it's delighting more in the gifts and losing the side of the giver or making the giver embrace your idea of what the gifts should be and yeah, do. Yeah. Right. We're, pretty good, at, we're like, pretty good at that too. God is cosmic genie right, to give me what I, what I want. And that's what we've seen in our culture. But at the same time, this is what's being exported of Christianity outside of America into Africa and Asia. And we see this all over the, with the prosperity gospel. Yeah. But that's not, yeah. that's, there's not a theology of suffering. There's not a theology right. of sacrifice. It's all about getting. Yeah. And not not of giving up in, in this culture of performance and production and consumption you quote a brazilian theologian and said mm-hmm. who says that play breaks mm-hmm. the cycle of that mm-hmm. how does play break that cycle and what do we mean by this cycle of production and consumption yeah you know i think 
I'll answer that second question first, but we, we tend to like in our modern Western world, we tend to work for rest. So we work, 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 we overwork, and then we like collapse in exhaustion. Um, and so there's this sense that we have to earn our rest. Um, and the Bible of course flips that we always work from rest, right. On the seventh Mm. day that God rested, right. He didn't have to rest. It wasn't like, ah, I'm tired creating the world. Um, but rather he shows us how to properly live for his creatures that he delights. And part of rest is delight, um, that he looks at everything and says, wow, that is good. That's so very good. And so it is from that position of rest from Sabbath that we actually do our work, um, which was hugely, of course, instrumental. My husband's preaching through Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis right now. And he keeps reminding us every week that, you know, that the book of Genesis, of course, was given to the Israelites after they came out of slavery. And so thinking of people enslaved for 400 years, never having had a day of rest. And what does it mean to actually experience like that you are not what you do? You actually get rest. And so I think we've kind of, in our modern culture, tended to like enslave ourselves, right? And to continue to work, to work to earn rest and to not actually accept the rest we've been given. Because rest, like play, to return to your question, is really vulnerable. And I think oftentimes we don't play and we don't rest because we don't know what's going to come up. So, you know, like when my daughter was little, she wanted me to play like dolls with her. And I really like, I don't remember how to play dolls. <laughs> I don't want to do it. You could just go like, go play outside, find one of your brothers. Um, because it was like, I didn't want to look stupid. And I'm like, come on, I'm not going to look stupid to my like five-year-old daughter. Um, she just wants the presence of her mother, right? To enjoy something. And how often do we choose to not play um, with other people or even to like look, deign to look foolish um, in front of other people or even with God and to be like, you know, the silence thing is weird. I've never done it before. I'm going to try it, you know, and to say like, God takes great delight in us. He's not like judging our, our behavior or our spiritual disciplines is a helpful reminder. Mm-hmm. How has, how is Sabbath helpful? I mean, the uh, Sabbath keeping mm-hmm. helpful in keeping us in a pattern of rest. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, I still struggle with Sabbath. It's tricky because as I was saying, my husband's a pastor. So most like he takes his like pastoral Sabbath on Monday, but we try to at least have the afternoons feel Sabbathy <laughs> as a family, the six of us. And with teenagers in the house, we're, you know, we're trying to let them sort of figure it out as they grow into adulthood too. Um, and often, you know, unfortunately it does look a lot like, okay, everyone's just on their devices. This is not what I had intended. And, but the idea, you know, when we try to, when we have more successful practices um, for us as a family, it looks like engaging in rest and like engaging in not having planned sort of day so that it doesn't feel like, oh gosh, we got to get here and here and there. Um, so we don't do our errands. We don't, you know, if we have people over, we enjoy good food and good drink together. We try to get a nap. Um, and the biggest thing that I feel like we've been consistent with is the idea of dessert. (laughs) And so (laughs) I always, right. If the Sabbath is, it's not like, just like, don't do all these things and it can feel super restrictive. And so I remember reading, I think it was in 
um, AJ Swoboda's book, A Glorious Dark, where he talks about the Hebrew children being awoken with honey on their tongues so that they would know that the Lord's day is always sweet. I was like, I can get on board (laughs) with that. So we don't always have dessert around the house. And so it became a way to have dessert and we have dessert first. So we have it before dinner, um, just as a way to remember that God is good and he gives us things to delight in. So that if anything, my kids for a long time, actually, my daughter would be like, is it Sabbath? Is it Sabbath? You know, for, <laughs> which basically meant like, is it time for dessert? <laughs> I, I'm trying to imagine putting honey on my kids' lips. Right. That, it, that feels like some tricky. bad thing from the parent trap. Yeah, right? that's With like, the, it's like, everywhere. that is not going to end well. Then of course, they're having honey. I'm like, dessert? Do I just put like a piece of cake in their mouth? Right. Maybe chocolate cake ground into the carpet. <laughs> I like the nap. Jesus took naps. Yes, so I'm, yes, I'm yes. all over the yeah. napping part of yeah. the whole deal. And I, and I, and I understand being, being in pastoral ministry, Sundays are hard. Mm-hmm. And like, I didn't do Mondays. Actually, we took off, I took off Thursdays. Okay. Um, just because we had deadlines with outlines on Fridays and everybody was trying to get stuff done at the end of the week, Thursday, no one wouldn't interrupt me, but then you don't get a weekend and your kids don't right. get involved. Right. Right. So those are those tricky moments yeah. of, and helping yeah. communicate to them those limitations. And even with yeah. devices, I think of Neil Postman, when he said that when you have a, a technology that's designed to do something like cell phones to connect, Right. But when it becomes flooded, then it does the opposite. So you can be mm-hmm. in the same room and everyone on their phone. So you're not connected. Yeah. Yeah. And then reversing yeah. that. How do you, mm-hmm. how do you, and that I think of um, Andy Crouch where it's mm-hmm. that tech wise. Yeah. Tech wise you know, family. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I agree with theoretically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the application is the part of it that's the yeah. hard part. Which, you know, where he says that, you know, you should have a tech free hour every day and, you know, around the dinner table and ideally in a tech free day and then a tech free week. Tech free week. I haven't read. I've got the book. Yeah. I just picked it up. I've, I've okay. had it sitting on my list for yeah. some time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's got to the point in time where I'm like, I think my son's phone is a permanent attachment. Yeah. I've got to change it because I know it has changed. Like, and you wrote about this, how it's changing your person's mm-hmm. brain. But, but just because we know this doesn't change it. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part. Right. It's, it's the like, implementation. Yeah. yeah the implementation yeah. of it in the personal discipline myself, that mm-hmm. my own discipline. And that's where I'm reminded of the self-control, the patience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the lack of hurrying. And again, something you wrote, you were quoting John Mark Comer, mm-hmm. hurry and love are incompatible. Yeah. How are hurry and love incompatible mm-hmm. well i mean hurry like when you're hurrying you're eventually you're eventually using people as objects like where you're the hero of your story it's the movie about your life and everyone else is just like a bit part right and so when you can't actually love another person sacrificially if you're the main character right all the time and everyone revolves around you <laughs> um but, you know, love always requires limits to be love, right? I'm not married to like all men generally. I'm married to one particular man with particular desires and particular ways of being in the world. And so for me to ignore, you know, the fact that he likes a tidier house than I keep <laughs> isn't love. <laughs> Do you have to, but, I have to ask yeah. this question? Do you yeah, have different yeah. definitions of clean? Oh, probably. Yeah. He's learned to live with some of my mess for sure. Um, and we kind of figure if we can get things tidy, 
generally by the end of the night, that's ideal. But we also try to just minimize the amount of stuff in the house. So that makes it easier. But yes. The reason the reason I ask my wife and I have two different definitions. Mine's tidy. Hers is yeah. like dust free and clean. Oh, right. Yeah, so that's she'll a whole say, other level. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which <laughs> I mean, she's like, it's it, she's like, it's not clean. I'm like, look, there's no piles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, so, that's a whole nother level. Yeah. yeah, I just would be good if we can get to the tidy. And my husband would love probably tidy and clean, but we also realize we have four kids and here we are. So. And that's the stage of life that you're at. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's where I wonder how many, my own kid, I'm like, how did the socks get in the lawnmower? I'm trying to f- figure that out. <laughs> I, yeah. Seriously, he's like, I don't, do you even, ha-? like, I want to walk up to him. I'm like, do you even have socks anymore? Because I found so many around. <laughs> Goodwill said, yeah. stop. We're good. Yes. We don't need any more. We've closed <laughs> half of the county because yeah. of your son. That's what you. it feels like. <laughs> I just close the room door. Oh, gosh. I don't even want to. It smells so bad in there. <laughs> it smells so bad. I know. It's just, oh, because I, I have two girls. I have four. Two girls, uh-huh. two boys. Mm-hmm. So my girls are older and my boys are sharing a room. One's 13 and one's nine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's like hazmat suit. Oh yeah, yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> hazmat suit. Like, like things are growing in here. It's not good. Right. It's not the boys. <laughs> it's not the boys. Matter of fact, we got to call the CDC. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> okay, I want to read this. I want to read one of these paragraphs that you wrote that I, I loved, and I want to quote it at length. Thanks. It's from page eighty-one. And when what Jesus offers to his disciples and to us as recipients of the gospel to the ends of the earth is more than an individual golden ticket to heaven when we die. He offers a long line of fulfillment of generational promises of making a home for those burdened by slavery and exile and fulfilling the promise to have a descendant of David on the throne. He not only keeps purification laws, but teaches that the kingdom of God demands more, a new heart. He's a prophet or he is prophet, priest and king. The freedom he offers is a collective freedom. He has come to prepare to marry his bride, the church. This is the part. I, I wanted to read that part because it leads into this. We have lost something when we've made the Christian life all about going to heaven when we die and about an individual experience of God. While it is those things, it is more than that. Jesus fits us together, living stones on the foundation of Christ alone. And as our shepherd guides us into spacious places, not only for ourselves, but also for the good of the world. He does so by taking in diverse individuals, calling us to follow him and enabling us to practice community together. What role then does this community participation have in our living this spacious life? Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing sometimes when you're like, oh, Paul really knew what he was talking about or Jesus was really correct, right? When you sometimes... Like we're surprised. I know, I know. Like, it's oh, like, the word of God is actually living and active in all generations. What? Um, but, you know, when when at various points, right, we're, we're heard in scripture, like different metaphors for the church, right? Jesus calls us um, salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount and... Um, Paul talks about we're a body, we're the body of Christ and many members of the body. And so I think often, um, I think the salt image is helpful because it reminds us that we're not very effective as one little single salt crystal, right? We're not, we're not going to get much done, right? A little, if you Mm. put one little teeny piece of salt in your pasta water, it's really not going to taste great or do any good. 
Um, but if you put handfuls of salt into the pasta water, it's actually going to taste the food. The pasta is going to taste better. It's going to taste as pasta should taste. And, you know, if you think about the metaphor of the body, um, you know, where Paul writes, like, should the hand say to the foot, I don't need you, right? Is that we all have a different role to play and we all have different limits, right? And the hand can do certain things that the foot can't do. Um, a leg muscle can be stronger in different ways, right? Than a hand or a neck. And so we just think about these actual metaphors really make sense um, that we are joined together to be something as the whole that we can't really be individually and that there is some identity formation in the process of being a whole that we can't really get past. And I think we've just, we've kind of made Christianity in the Western world so individualistic, so kind of infused with this idea of unlimited autonomy that we don't actually see, hey, I'm actually losing something when I only see my Christian faith as an individual experience. Which that's the Newbegin idea of that the community is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And right. and I know you work with Russell Moore when he mentioned that people are leaving the church, not because they don't believe the, the right. truth of the yeah. scriptures, but yeah. that the church itself doesn't believe because the church mm -hmm. is the greatest hermeneutic that we have. Unfortunately, right. becoming just this individualistic salvation, we come in, get our mm -hmm. fix and go. And mm -hmm. then we have a thin, and I love how you put that in the book. You mentioned we have a thin connection. Mm -hmm. Um we need to to thicken that. But you mm -hmm. also mentioned, and you quote Seth Kaplan, uh, writing mm -hmm. for Comment, which we've had Anne mm -hmm. on the show, the editor. Mm -hmm. She says, you wrote that, or quote, excuse me, that we are increasingly allergic to constraints and losing community in the process because few want to compromise their privacy and surrender their freedom. And that was mm -hmm. on page 87. So how are people then not wanting to give up their privacy and their freedom because that seems to be the price in order mm -hmm. to have community you have yeah. to give up something mm -hmm. why are we so against giving that up to embrace this idea of community that we know is good and necessary for us to be the people i mean selfishly for us to be the people that god wants us to be mm -hmm. as you said mm -hmm. we can't do this individually away from community mm -hmm. so how do we yeah. then help people to see that and enter into it yeah you know it's so hard. It's so hard because we still, even though so many of us love the church, they are committed to the church. They believe in the tenets of Christian faith and practice. Um, I mean, we've seen this and I'm sure you have too, where people just decide to leave, right? And they just kind of ghost you or, you know, members who have committed and made vows, then just leave, you know, and think an email saying, hey, we're no. out. Yeah. Um, is okay. And so, you know, as folks in pastoral ministry know, that becomes kind of an aggregate pain and hurt where you're, you feel like everything's personal. Um, and it becomes frustrating when you go, when you think big picture, how is the church going to be a counterculture of love when we can't even stick with one another or even have the hard conversation about like whatever XYZ issue was the precipitating issue? I mean, and that's just one example we see it in you know lots of small ways where people don't want to volunteer or people just don't care or they'd rather go to all of these fun vacations or have their kids involved in these sports every single Sunday whatever it is where we don't actually functionally believe that the church is how Jesus says he's gonna save the world <laughs> mm. right we don't we don't believe in you know Genesis 12 when when God says to Abram that you're gonna be a blessing so that you can bless the nations. Um, 
we kind of just see church as this nice little feel good experience that gives me another injection shot for another week of nice Jesus feelings. And, you know, the challenge then I think for us who is to put our money where our mouth is, um, to show up and to suffer with difficult people with, you know, people who, um, have a lot of pain, um, to suffer through awkward conversations, to, um, engage with people we might not naturally engage with, uh, because we know there's something in that person that I need and there's something that they need from me. And it can't, you know, I don't exist. Don't unsaid, right? No man's an island. So we can't actually flourish apart from other people. Although that is hard to communicate when they're not even there. Yes. When they're at home, Hmm? just walled up in their little mini castle, insulated from the cares of the world, it it does call for a radical reorientation. One of the things that we've called for is a missionary ecclesiology. Basically, Mm -hmm. the church needs to recover that idea of being sent on mission into the world. And part of that mission means vulnerability to the people around you. And Mm -hmm. I love how one person put it years ago, I think it was in Dillard, I think was what she wrote. She said, in, in the church, people are one of two things. She said, there are marbles or grapes. Marbles repel one another mm. and send each other off in the um, other direction. But when grapes collide, they bleed mm. and they mingle That's juices, good. creating the sweet. I know. I love that image. I know. Ann Ortland, not Ann Dillard, Ann Ortland. Sorry. Okay. Um, but I love that imagery. Because yeah. that's it's the mingling together of that sweet fellowship that becomes the aroma of Christ that other people then are drawn to. Mm-hmm. Yet in our culture, we have allowed, and I think this is in many respects because of an anemic or shallow teaching mm-hmm. of what the kingdom mm-hmm. of God is that in mm-hmm. some respect has was allowed to flourish on the back of where America was 50 years ago and yeah. worked yeah. within a certain cultural context. But the topography mm-hmm. has shifted culturally yep. speaking. Yep. So now we have to go deeper into the roots of what the gospel is. And I see that in the younger generation too. Mm -hmm. Some of these younger people, I was at a conference recently and they're asking me questions of theologians that I, that I know postgraduate students are just studying. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there going, they long for this. They don't want the McDonaldization of the church anymore. They don't want Mm -hmm. the show, the light show, the lights. They they don't care about that. They, Mm -hmm. they could. And some of them said, again, these are 25 year olds are like, get rid of all the lights. We don't care. Yeah. Just give me, give me the depth of the word and what it means mm-hmm. to have a relationship truly with God, not just individual salvation, but I need to know yeah. how it applies mm-hmm. and seeps out into the other different spheres of my life. And I, I love, beautiful. I think God is doing a work there. Yeah. Um, so God. yeah. Yeah. Praise God. Sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> pass the plate. All right. We're going to have an altar <laughs> call. We're going to run this thing. Yeah. Um, you quote a German philosopher, which you didn't name the philosopher, by the way. So I figured you were trying to get by fast with it. It's Nietzsche, isn't it? Is no, it Nietzsche? no, it's Who a new it? guy. Hartmut Rosa. Yeah. Oh, well, I haven't read okay. his big stuff. I just read a short little book. He wrote. So, he wrote so you're trying to be idea. safe. You're like, OK, I don't want anybody to fry me. I don't know who this guy is. Right. Well, I know like his little book, but I haven't like read his corpus. OK, so. OK. Well, see, she said <laughs> I, I was like, she's she didn't name him. So I do that when I don't want people to know who it is. Right. Then they'll yell yeah, at me. No. <laughs> That's a good tactic, though. I'll remember. <laughs> but you quote the German philosopher who writes of, because I didn't know his or her, so now I know it's a his. Yeah. yeah. Of his exasperation with the way the world works, and says it's not because what is out there that is still being denied to denied to us, but the frustration is is that we now have it under control. Mm-hmm. Please translate for those 
who are not PhDs from Edinburgh. <laughs> but I'm you not do the Scottish accent, PhD. by the way. Can you but, do it? Uh, I there was one children's book that we would read to our kids in a Scottish accent, so I still have that one. It was Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy, a, little, <laughs> oh, a wee little pup. Um, so yeah, I, I got that one still. <laughs> I like it. I <laughs> yeah, like my it. I so I want to do Scottish all day long. If I could preach it's, like a Scotsman, I would. I'd yeah. do it. I love it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> keep going. Yes. Yeah, so Hartmut Rosa writes about this idea of resonance. So you know whether it's um, kind of the magic of new falling snow. He uses that example um, in his book about that we somehow, it's almost like um, what Taylor would talk about, you know, as these sort of windows to transcendence um, mm. that in in our modern world, you know, everything has become flattened, um, that everything is within this imminent frame is how Charles Taylor would talk about it. And there's a sense for Rosa that, you know, there's there are certain things that provide this sort of resonance that kind of, widen our view um that actually a lot of our angst that we feel in modern life isn't because we're trying to like control everything um but almost like we're dissatisfied with the fact that we feel like we can control because the mystery has been removed yeah we need that the idea to connect with god see it's my it's been my my it's been kind of my thesis and we've talked about this a bit ad nauseum on the show is that if you go back to the, the Jesus films, like the early ones, mm-hmm. the, the transcendence of Jesus was very high mm-hmm. and the humanity was just too real. But mm-hmm. now it's like, because we've tapped into the kind of the transcendency idea, we need Jesus mm-hmm. to be human and close, mm-hmm. but we still mm-hmm. need to have that mystery of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because when Jesus doesn't, I mean, we've tamed him, you yeah. know, in a way, mm-hmm. but again, Lewis, He's not yep. a tame lion. Right. And I, I, I still love that imagery. I still but he's good. Really do that. <laughs> yeah, he is good. He is good. Um, as we've talked about through the, these ideas of low limits of waiting mm-hmm. and being a part of the kingdom of God, this ne- necessity of community, kind of recessing how to live in the midst of this world, in some respects, calling people out to counter cultural practices that show the reality that we are God's people and we are distinct. Mm-hmm. It's not just, I mean, it is the idea of better humanity. I, I remember Kelly Capic mentioning that. Mm-hmm. And so Dan Strange saying that part of what we have to do in this midst of our culture is we've lost touch with our own humanity. We need to be able yeah. to recover those limits. And those are mm-hmm. bad things. And you've, you've addressed that. And very, I, I think um, in our everyday lives to be able to see and be more transcendent and, and experience it a, a bit more as, as we've gone about it. As we we conclude our time today, what is something that we can give to our audience that might help in the implementation mm-hmm. and or experimentation with this idea or, or becoming aware of their limits, but what else that they can put into their lives as a practice so that they might not be carried on this river of modernity and Western culture that's always looking for success and material prosperity, but rather seeks to live the spacious life that God calls us to. So what's this water bottle that we can leave for them as we conclude our time together? Yeah. You know, I think I would say I would practice just um, being in God's presence as a daily personal practice. Um, So whether often we can look at our Bible reading and our prayer time as, you know, check marks or as helpful for study, 
Um, and so we can even use God and the Bible, right, as a as a way to kind of curry favor um, or to make ourselves look good as, oh, yes, I've done now my quote unquote Christian thing. Um, so I would say, yeah, are, are there ways in which you can practice silence or stillness, creating margin, creating time just to be with God, maybe light a candle, set a timer for a few minutes and just be like, God, I'm just going to keep thinking about you and your work for me and just be with you in the same way that a parent delights to be with his or her child. Um, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. You can just be together. And I think that'll probably make you feel really awkward for a while. <laughs> um, and that's good and normal. I think sometimes to just rattle us out of our complacency. Um, but then maybe even try inviting someone else into that practice. What would it look like to pray together? What would it look like to be silent before God together? What would it look like to practice some vulnerability um, within community and not just with, you know, someone that you know really well that you've developed 10 years of friendship with? Do you receive help as much as give help? Um, those might be some practical starters. And then also I encourage folks to do both like a time audit, whether it's your day, I mean, your iPhone might give you a, oh gosh, how long have you been on your phone every day update <laughs> once a week? Um, but those sorts of auditing sort of things are just helpful check-ins to know what maybe what you're running to or running towards when those moments of silence or stillness or waiting feels really challenging. Thank you for that. I hope that really does help our people. And lastly, how can people follow you and learn more of what you're doing. Thanks, Jean. Um, so you can find links to my podcasting work. My husband and I host a, a podcast on um, called the Cartographers on kind of Christian leadership for 21st century Christian leaders. You feel kind of stuck in the middle of the culture wars. Um, I have various writing things there, and also coming up on October 20th. I'm leading a writing webinar with Mike Cosper at Christianity mm. Today. So we're going to be talking about how do you write newsletters? How do you write sermons? How do you write whatever it is you're writing as ways to actually stir the affections like Augustine said. Awesome. Fun. Thank you, Ashley, for coming on Apollos Water. You are so welcome. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. There is a goodness of limits. When we go beyond those limits, there's transgression. Instead, God is calling you to trust, to find rest, to practice a different rhythm. He's calling you to wait. You can't force a conversation with God. That's not how God works. You have to wait on that conversation, coming face to face with who you are in the midst of it. I was reading something the other day. It was a, actually a quote on G.K. Chesterton, who said, a man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. I think for many of us, we are so busying ourselves with scrolling on social media, keeping ourselves so busy, because we too are also looking for God, but we're fearful of what he's going to show us. You can have the spacious life that God wants for you, even in the midst of of the tight spaces of where you're at right now. 
All of the hurry and stuff that you place in your life, often by default, aren't adding up to the happiness that you are seeking, and certainly not the good and flourishing life that you expect God wants you to have. Our modern Western world promises all of these things, but it's increasingly obvious to so many that it can't deliver. And instead, you tend to live a life of quiet angst and isolation, or as Henry David Thoreau once said, a life of quiet desperation. You find yourself cut off from others. And more importantly, God. And secretly, you're suspicious that he really isn't there for you. So you just keep doing Christian stuff and that becomes your checkbox on your to-do list. And the pictures on your social media or the trappings of your faith seem to give this image that God is there with you. But you feel this aching feeling that he's not there. See, Ashley's reminder to you and me is at once obvious and profound. It's a pause. It's a call for us to take time to be with God. Just be with him and listen. Not to check a box. It means put away your phone, put it in a different room, turn it off, close a computer, light a candle, get in a dark room, focus on the Lord, open the word of God, and just be willing to wait. To live with and in the silence. It's going to feel odd. It's going to feel weird. But do it. Your mind is going to wonder, you're going to have all these strange thoughts, but you got to get through those. You have to quiet yourself. Start by thanking God for five things in your life. Five, God, five things. Spend time in five memories. We've, we've heard about this from Chris Corsi and from Charles Stone and from Jim Wilder and Marcus Warner to quiet yourself. What I'm saying is not a magic bullet. It's not a formula. It's going to be a struggle. And it's not the kind of stuff that sales pitches well. It's not the kind of message that's easy to build a ministry around because it's not a quick fix. It's a kingdom fix. It's a perspective fix. It's getting in line with God and what he does and who he is. And it's true. The kinds of things that Ashley is talking about are the kinds of things that will be required of each one of us if we're to truly live a faithful and fruitful missionary encounter with our culture. It's calling us to have a crockpot experience, not an instapot one. And if you are truly going to show the world that you have something better and a better humanity, that's what we're offering to people. I mean, we're offering them forgiveness, but we're showing them through our lives that we have something better. Because if, if we don't have anything better, if our lives are completely a mess, why would anyone want to follow or even listen to what you're saying? Why would they want what you claim? I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm not saying you have to have everything together. What I'm saying is, is that the trajectory needs to be going toward God and showing that you are living according to a different standard and a different rhythm. And it's God's standard and God's rhythm. And you're showing by your life the reality that God is present in you and it's going against the current of our culture. And when you do this, you're going to find the cultural idolatries that you have held on to come to the surface. And I would encourage you to identify them, confess them, give them over to God, renounce them and any demonic presence that is associated with them. And then cling to the Lord, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
That's my encouragement for you today. And I want to thank you for listening to our show. And I want to thank all of those out there who pray for us and who financially support what we do. If you're not doing either one of those things, why not? We would love to have you join the Apollos Watered family. Again, I would encourage you to check out our website, apolloswater.org, especially our watering weekends for churches and groups. We'd love to be able to come out to serve your people so that they too might grow in their missionary encounter with Western culture. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.